Well, good morning. I give honor to our great and worthy God, deserving of all praise. I magnify Him. I'm thankful for the privilege of being with you, brothers and sisters. And Brother Gary, I would have been glad to hear you this morning, but uh, I guess you you uh, maybe sometimes teachers need a break too, don't they? So we're glad for the opportunity to be able to bring a word this morning. And I, I would uh, ask you to turn with me to the book of Judges in... Uh, one of the tracts of Bible reading I do yearly. I've been reading through the book of Judges lately, and uh, as I've read the words there of uh, this book, haven't finished it yet in that particular tract, but uh, we thought about the overall outline of the book of Judges as the writer gives it to us there in Judges chapter 2. And I'd like for us to just spend some time in this hour looking together at that portion and some other uh, portions of the book of Judges and then maybe make a concluding application for each of our lives from it. But uh, as we read together, if you don't mind, join with me in reading the whole of chapter 2. I'm going to begin at verse 1. We'll read through to verse 23. And uh, we'll see here what really in the course of this chapter... Well, it amounts to an outline of the book of Judges. Uh, Judges is probably not a book that most people read. Not the kind of book where if you're doing your devotionals, you're going to read it for devotional reading because there's a lot of things about Israel's failure here. But in the record of Israel's failure, I'm afraid, sadly, we see mirrored some of our own failure. And in the record of Israel's turning, when God speaks to them in chastisement, As he does that, we see what God often does with us in his dealings with us. And not only that, we see the response we should have as believers to him when he does bring chastening in our lives. Now I realize that as we (laughs) recently politically have heard that phrase quid pro quo, well, there's not a quid pro quo analogy between Old Testament Israel and the believer. There are differences, and yet there are those things in which we can see the parallels as well. So let's read chapter 2 then, beginning at verse 1, and uh, we will read again through to the end of the chapter. And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And ye shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. Ye shall throw down their altars. But ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out from before you. But they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. And it came to pass, when the angel of the Lord spake these words... And to all the children of Israel, that the people lifted up their voice and wept. And they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there unto the Lord. And when Joshua had let the people go, the children of Israel went every man unto his inheritance to possess the land. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders that outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord that he did for Israel. And Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died, being an hundred and ten years old. And they buried him in the border of his inheritance in Timnath-Heres, in the land, of, excuse me, in the Mount of Ephraim, on the north side of the hill Gaash. 
And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers. And there arose another generation after them which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which He had done for Israel. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers which brought them out of the land of Egypt and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them and bowed themselves unto them and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord and served Baal and Ashtaroth. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so that they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed." Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges, which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges, but they went a-whoring after other gods, and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord, but they did not so. And when the Lord raised up judges, then the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he said, Because that this people had transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and have not hearkened unto my voice, I also will not henceforth drive out any from before them of the nations which Joshua left when he died, that through them I may prove Israel whether they will keep the way of the Lord to walk therein, as their fathers did keep it or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out hastily, neither delivered He them into the hand of Joshua. We trust our God will add His blessing to His Word as we consider it this morning. May we just again call on Him. Father, we bow in the name of Thy dear Son, and as we do, we ask Thy cleansing, we ask Thy blessing, Father, we ask Thy Spirit's aid in looking to Thy Word. Father, we desire that as we look to it, You would speak to us. Father, open our hearts indeed to Your Word and open Your Word to our hearts. Thank You, Father, for the privilege of being back with our brothers and sisters here at Spring Lake. And Father, we desire that this day would be a day in which You would be glorified, the Lord Jesus honored. And Father, which we draw near to Thee and You draw near to us. In Christ's worthy name we pray. Amen. As we look at these words again in chapter 2, really the cycle of the book of Judges is outlined for us by the writer. Uh, It's not something that happens in every biblical book. Uh, Sometimes people have searched almost in vain for an outline. You read the book of Jeremiah and as you read it, it's very difficult. Uh, As recently as maybe... uh, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, commentators who spent their much of their lives studying that book came away saying, there's no visible outline. Uh, there's a brother whom we had the privilege of meeting when I lived in Pennsylvania. He's written a book called The Literary Structure of the Old Testament. Gone to be with the Lord now, Brother David Dorsey. Very learned man, very humble man at the same time. He wrote his doctoral dissertation on the roads in Israel at the time of David. 
Now, you can imagine what kind of work that took. But uh, we had the privilege of uh, visiting with him in the school in which he taught there in Myerstown, Pennsylvania. In that book, The Literary Structure of the Old Testament, he feels he's cracked the code when it comes to the book of Jeremiah. And uh, I felt he's had some success in that. But again, the, the uh, sometimes it's not surface when it comes to the outline. I mentioned last time we were with you preaching from the book of Ephesians, a simple outline that has been given of that. Sit, walk, stand by one writer, the wealth, walk, and warfare of the child of God by another. Same basic outline though, chapters 1 through 3, our wealth. We've been made to sit in heavenly places. Uh, chapters 4 through 6, verse 9, uh, our, our walk. We're called, both words are the same in, in the two outlines. Our walk, what we're, how we're called to live. And then finally stand or our warfare, verses 10 and following. And how we are to realize the battle against us. We wrestle not against, against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. Well, judges in some measure, while it may not be fully easy to outline, the writer gives us an outline of what he's going to tell us. And basically, again, it's an outline of Israel's failure. God had clearly spoken to them through Moses all along in the books of the law. In Exodus, He had anticipated the fact that He would bring them into the land. And by His presence, He would do that. He gave them the pillar of cloud and fire, visible emblem of His, of his presence. And, and that led them through the wilderness into the land. And also, God gave them as well in the book of Numbers definite command about how they were to deal with the peoples in the land that they were going to possess. When God had spoken to Abram about it in Genesis 15, looking forward 400 years, predictively, God spoke of how His... Abraham's descendants would go down to a land not their own and they'd be among a strange people. That was Egypt. And they'd be oppressed there. But then after 400 years, they'd come out. And God gave this reason in Genesis 15. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. Now that's an interesting statement. In other words, God said the Amorites, the people who live in Canaan, have not yet filled up the cup of my wrath by their iniquity. But when they did, God was going to use Israel as a scourge. He was going to use them as a sword of judgment. And when they entered under Joshua, that realization was theirs. Joshua and the elders who were chiefs of the tribes with him, they recognized that God wanted His punishment enacted against these peoples, whether the Canaanites or the Perizzites or the Hivites or the Hittites or the Girgashites. One brother, when he's reading that, threw in termites there just for humor, you know. But uh, all of these people groups, because they had sinned. But God also warned Israel, if you do not exterminate them, then you will learn their ways. If you give their daughters, uh, give your sons to their daughters, and if you give your daughters to their sons, then they're going to have their impact on you. And you will wind up worshiping their God. And even though, like a caution sign that says, Bridge out, bridge out, bridge out, the warning's flashing. And, 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 it, and the sign's doing its job. It's, it's, it's blinking and the, the yellow's there. I go on and say, well, that bridge is not out. And I keep going and I wind up driving into a chasm. God had just as clearly warned Israel and said, 
Don't you do it. And Israel failed to respond. And as those who survived Joshua, the elders, died out, a new generation arose as we see that knew not the Lord, verse 10 tells us. And as that happened, God then gives us this synopsis of the book of Judges that begins in verse 11 and continues through verse 19. You could really extend it into verse 23, but in verses 11 through 19 we see the pattern. Uh, We've read it, and interestingly, this chapter begins with those opening verses that speak of this figure who is called an angel of the Lord in verse 1, but then in verse 4, he is called the angel of the Lord. And this is a significant figure in the book of Judges, and he's a significant figure, kind of disappears for a while And then at the end of Israel's history, in the last books, particularly Zechariah, he appears again. I want us to notice him because in some measure these words form a fitting preface to the outline of the book uh, that's given in chapter 2. That cycle, as some have called it, of the book of Judges. The place is called Bochim. It's... uh, up from Gilgal. Gilgal remembers where Israel camped when they entered the land in Joshua. They had crossed over from the plains of Moab. And of course among that's Pisgah where Moses saw the land before his death. And then the Lord brought him home. The Lord put his servant to death. Moses was called home. And as the Lord did that, they went over and they encamped at Gilgal before they invaded the land technically or formally and took the first city Jericho as a first fruits of the Lord. There at Gilgal, when they were present, a number of things happened. Uh, they, people had not been circumcised during those 40 years in the wilderness. They were circumcised there. They basically renewed the covenant by taking that covenant sign. And, and, and other things significantly happened, but as they were there... Uh, This place became for them a place of memorial. When they had come over the Jordan, they'd set up stones there. And God said, when your children ask, what meaneth these stones? You're to tell them what God did here. How He opened the waters of Jordan. And it was at flood stage at that point. Uh, when, When Jordan swells her banks. And yet God caused that miracle to take place that was so similar to what God had done at the Red Sea with Moses. Except in this case it was Joshua. And God had told Joshua, I am going to magnify you in the eyes of the people as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And God did that. In the eyes of the people, the miracle that He had done with Moses in bringing them out of Egypt, God replicated as they entered the land with Joshua at the Jordan. And as they entered the Jordan, they then came to Gilgal. And it's from here that this angel of the Lord comes up. But notice as he speaks in verse 1, how he speaks. Joshua again, Judges 2.1 And an angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I made you to go up out of Egypt and have brought you into the land which I swear unto your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. Now notice all the eyes here. This messenger of the Lord, and remember the word angel in our English language, comes from the Latin word angelus, or angelus, depending on whether you're using classical or ecclesiastical Latin. 
And that comes from the Greek word angelos, which means messenger. And the word messenger itself, angelos, angelos in the scriptures, in the Greek is, a, is really a translation of malak in Hebrew, messenger. Sometimes translated angel. The last book of our Old Testament is Malachi. It means my messenger. It comes from that word malach, which is the word for a messenger. Now we think often of those messengers as created celestial beings or messengers of a specific type, that is angels. And that's how they had that name. In this case though... The angel that speaks here, I along with many other Bible students am convinced, is not a created celestial being. This angel is the angel of the Lord that appears in the book of Genesis. It seems first in chapter 16 by name. It could be that in chapter 3, it's this messenger of the Lord who came down and walked in the garden when our first parents heard them, heard, those, heard His voice and they hid themselves among the trees of the garden. But this is, I believe, the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, I'm not alone in that. Because this messenger, he comes from Jehovah as a messenger. And yet, when he speaks, he speaks as Jehovah. How is that? Because we have here something in the Old Testament that really anticipates what we see in the New as the doctrine of the Trinity. One God... And yet within the one Godhead, three distinct eternal persons. Now, Brother Ken, how am I going to figure that out? (laughs) Help me here, brother. (laughs) I can't wrap my pea brain around that. Just, I, I can't do it. And yet I bow to it. Why? Because I know the Scriptures teach it. The Bible tells me God is one. And yet I hear the Lord Jesus saying, before Abraham was, I am, John eight fifty eight, And so I realized, and the Jews understood him. A lot of the JWs that come knocking on your door today, they don't understand it because they'll want to say, well, that's the historic present. <laughs> no, not in that case it's not. John uses historic present, but not there. Before Abraham, the Jews recognized they took up stones to stone him because why? They knew he was claiming the name of Jehovah God. This is the one who speaks here. Our Lord Jesus, the pre-incarnate Christ. There's an anticipation here of the doctrine of the Trinity, of the doctrine of the plurality of persons within the one singular Godhead. And this messenger comes up from Gilgal to Bukhim. He's been walking. So I'm going to assume that he probably has a human form. And he goes up from Gilgal to a place that we would not know otherwise, but by his appearance there, because as it tells us in the words there of verse 5, the name Bochim is given because the people wept there before the Lord. They wept when they heard the words of the angel of the Lord in verse 4. And the Hebrew word for weep is Bacha. Now, it's one of those guttural types of letters, like, you know, when you're saying Bach rightly in German, Johann Sebastian Bach, you got to clear your throat. Well, that's Bacha here, the word for weep. And this place is called Bochim because they wept there. And literally, the word Bochim in Hebrew is a participial form. It means weepers or weeping ones. And, and, and that's what they're doing there. As they hear the angel of the Lord speak. Now notice how he reproves them here. 
I brought you up. I said I'll never make my co- break my covenant. Verse 2, And you shall make no league with the inhabitants of this land. You shall throw down their altars, but ye have not obeyed my voice. Why have ye done this? Wherefore I also said, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall be as thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare unto you. The response of the people was to weep over it. They heard this announcement and they realized, what have we done? Now, in some measure, these words of verse uh, verses 1 through 5, again, form a preamble to what we have in verses 11 through 19. Uh, I like the, what the black preacher said about preaching. Uh, and of course, you know, Plato said repetition is the first law of learning. The black preacher said, first I tell him what I'm going to tell him. He said, then I tell him, then I tell him what I told him. Now that's preaching, you know, drive the nail, drive the nail, set it, you know. Well, that's what happens here. God gives the sense, the angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, pre-incarnate, as His messenger, who comes from the Father, who is Jehovah, and yet He speaks as Jehovah because He's Jehovah the Son. He comes and He speaks, and as He does, He reproves Israel for their failure. He points out what will be really the pivotal thing that's going to mark the whole of the book of Judges when as it says at the end of the book of Judges, you remember that final conclusion, the two epilogue stories, the story of Micah and his house of gods, and as well the the Levite whose wife is raped by the men of Gibeah, sadly, in that in, of the tribe of Benjamin. And it says that epilogue to the book of Judges, in those days there was no king in Israel Every man did what was right in his own eyes. Sounds like modern America, doesn't it? Sounds like what's facing us today. But but we, we see that, and that's the upshot of what happened because the people's failure to deal with sin as God told them to deal with sin. Now, we want to, as we said, make application at the end, but I feel like I could make some application to my life right now. Because every time I fail to deal with sin, as God says, deal with it, I sow a bad harvest. It won't. That law's not going to change. We might want it to. We might pray for crop failure, as one brother put it. But when we sow that bad seed, and, and, and this is something that God's word gives to us in a in a recurring way. And we think particularly about a book like Judges, or we think about the histories that are in the Kings and the Chronicles. And, and we think, why does God just keep giving us all this history? I love history. My wife is not as much of a history lover. And uh, sometimes I can bore her to tears if I start getting on historical. To, when she was at Bob Jones, I went down to pick her up. Uh, from from the end of the school year uh, back in uh, 79 she still remembers when we passed down 85 and we get near Cowpens and Kings Mountain there are two battlefields there we went to Cowpens and I told her the story of Dan Morgan the old wagoner and how he won the the uh, battle of Cowpens against Benaster Tarleton and uh, she was thrilled y'all can imagine <laughs> She did cartwheels. She was so excited, right? But sometimes we read the history and we fail to 
grasp. What's the message here? But one thing God is doing again is with the caution lights of a neon sign, God's saying, I want you to see where my people failed so that you won't repeat their history. And yet sadly, with all of those warnings, so often you and I, maybe not in the same way, we haven't followed Baal and Astarte, Baal and Ashtoreth, but we've, we've done our own thing with regard to sin and we failed to realize the call to repent, the call to deal with sin as God says deal with it. And so because of that, we have this pattern that again we see in verses 11 through 19. Let's walk through that a little bit together, brothers and sisters. And then as we do that, Kind of see the pattern as it's mirrored in Judges a little. Uh, We could do it throughout the book, but time won't allow us to do that. But just to see it, let's pick up now at verse 11. We have that interlude in verses 6 through 10 in which, uh, again, Joshua's referenced, uh, taking us back really to the beginning of the book and to the end of the book of Joshua. This servant of the Lord dies, and those who survived him die. And then in verse 11 we read, And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and served Balaam. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, which brought them out of the land of Egypt, and followed other gods of the gods of the people that were round about them, and bowed themselves unto them, and provoked the Lord to anger. And they forsook the Lord, and served Baal and Ashtaroth. Now these gods here that are referred to are actually male and female deities that were worshipped by the Canaanites. It would have been a religion that was common not only in Canaan, but throughout the whole of the uh, of the known world. Basically, fertility cults, and and the worship was wicked. Uh, the the male and female god, they had their their symbols of these deities, and you'll read about even later in the days of the kings. The pool and the appeal was still there. And they followed in that type of worship. Even the kings of Judah did that. And when there was reform under godly kings like Jehoshaphat and Hezekiah or even Asa, we find that they destroyed these Ashtoreth. Sometimes the King James will translate it groves. But the reference is to the places where these false gods were worshipped. This, this male and female deity where they were worshipped. And some of it involves sodomites as well as female prostitution in the worship of their gods. Now it wasn't only in Canaan. When Paul preached the gospel there at Corinth, there were temples to the goddesses like that. The kind of wickedness that God had forbade and God said no to for His people. But the appeal of the flesh was there. And as a result of that, Israel fell into that sin. And as a result, we read in verse 14, The anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and He delivered them into the hands of spoilers that spoiled them, and He sold them into the hands of their enemies round about, so they could not any longer stand before their enemies. Whithersoever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for evil, as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn unto them, and they were greatly distressed. So here again, the pattern. They sin. They follow these false gods that God has warned them. Do not worship them. And as they do that, then God says, Alright now, I'm going to deal with you. And God's anger 
His hot, holy anger against sin is, is manifested and they're unable to stand against the enemies that God raises up against them. God sells them, it says, into the hand of those. And that word is used later a couple of times in the incidental, the, the individual incidents of this happening in the lives of the judges that God raised up to deliver them. Israel was sold into the hand. God delivered them over, gave them over because they failed to obey Him. And God's anger against sin was manifested. And they went out with their armies to fight and they were unable to defeat the enemy. Why? Because God had given them over because of their sin. The Bible tells us some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. Their trust shouldn't have been in their armament. Their trust should have been in the Lord. There's a great example of this after the book of Judges in the life of Samuel. Before he is actually a judge over Israel, when Eli is still a judge, you'll remember that Israel went out to fight against the Philistines. And as they went out, they were defeated. And so one of them had the bright idea. You know, the light bulb went off. Oh, it's because the ark of the Lord's not with us. And so they bring the ark of the Lord into the camp. And when they do, they shout. And the Philistines say, what's happening over there in the Israelite camp? Oh, the ark of God's come. Oh, those were the gods who smoked the Egyptians in the wilderness. They got a little bit of the history wrong, but they understood. Well... They said, you better fight like men or you're going to be slaves to the Hebrews like they've been to you. And they went out and they laid a whooping on Israel. Why? Because somehow Israel, when they brought the ark into the camp, they looked on it like a lucky rabbit's foot. Now we got the ark. We've rubbed our rabbit's foot. Some of y'all may remember that episode in Andy Griffith when... uh, Barney is scared to death about some kind of hex. And as he walks out of the sheriff's office, he rubs Opie's red head, you know. Well, they felt like they'd rubbed Opie's red head now. And so they were safe. And the Philistines defeated them. Why? Because God had given them over. What was that? Well, it was something that really is mercy, even though it's not always seen as mercy. The chastening hand of the Lord that was doing what? Showing Israel. This is the way walk ye in it. And that's the beauty of the way our God deals with us. He loves us enough not to let us get by with sin. I'm thankful. Because sin will never satisfy. One has said, especially against the backdrop of the book of Judges, this is appropriate. Sin will always take you farther than you wanted to go, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you wanted to pay. That's the nature of sin. And God wanted His people to learn that lesson. And so He, when they rebelled against Him, He brought heavy chastisement on them. Now, our time is going quickly, so I might have to just summarize a little more than I wanted to. But 1 Corinthians 11, when Paul deals with the matter of the abuses at the Lord's table that the church at Corinth was guilty of, you remember he warns them that when they partake, they are to discern the Lord's body. Now there may be a double reference to the body that was represented by the bread, but also the body that they were meeting with because it appears they had like a, a potluck supper, pot providence we would like to say, right? And, and, and so some though who were rich in the church, I guess they were bringing filet mignon. 
And some of them didn't have any pinto beans to cook. They were poor. And so Paul says, one is full and another is hungry. He said, and, and on that score, he says, have ye not houses to eat? In other words, if all you're going to do is have a meal, then eat at home. If you're not going to share one another's fellowship at the meal. And against that backdrop, they weren't observing the Lord's Supper rightly. And Paul says, remember the words, for this cause... Many are weak and sickly among you, and some sleep. And then he adds the reason. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we not be condemned with the world. In other words, if we are believers, we belong to His family. And guess what? God's going to make sure us His children are well reared. He's going to make sure that we know what it is. Now, Israel did not learn that lesson well. And there's that cycle of the judges that follows in which they continually are brought as they rebel. Instead of being faithful to the Lord as they rebel, God says, all right, time for another. Uh, We knew a man who was uh, in ministry. You've probably heard me mention Elder Ward. He had a lot of sons in the ministry. And they called him Pop. And he'd sometimes speak strongly to them. And he said, if you call me Pop, you better expect a Pop. (laughs) And uh, our Father deals with us that way sometimes. David knew that in Psalm 32. He learned it when he would not confess his sin. He said when verses 3 and 4 of Psalm 32, When I kept silence, my bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. What was on him? God's hand, heavy. I'd rather the hand of God be on me for good. But when I'm in error, I'd rather His hand be on me heavy than not it on me at all. In Israel, God's hand was on them because they had sinned. And God dealt with them. And as a result, they would cry out to Him. Now, I mentioned Brother Ward. Brother Ward uh, told the story of when he was growing up in Murray, Kentucky. That's western Kentucky. There's Murray State University there. I had a friend we worked with uh, here in the Burlington area whose dad was tennis instructor at Murray State for a while. His uh, grandfather, J.S. Lilly, was a pastor of the First Baptist Church of Murray. Well, Brother Ward, black brother, grew up in, in uh, Murray. His mother was a single mother. She had uh, conceived Brother Ward out in St. Louis when she found out she was expecting she went back to Murray. And so her parents helped her raise Brother Ward. He called his grandmother Good Mammy. Good Mammy. And he said that sometimes Good Mammy would lay a whooping on him. I remember him telling one time, she said, Boy, I'll walk a mud hole in you and stomp it dry. (laughs) Now that's serious discipline there, sirs. (laughs) But he said he, he, he learned something. When Good Mammy would discipline him, he'd pull away. And he said when he'd pull away, that just gave her more striking distance. He said he learned when good mammy was whipping him to throw himself around her legs. And said she just couldn't get as good a stroke then. Brothers and sisters, when we're going through the chastening of our Lord, of our God, best thing to do is not pull away. Best thing to do is throw yourself around the legs of your father. Because that, I'll tell you this, the, the stroke's not going to seem as strong when you're wrapped around in His person, His being. 
And Israel, when God brought chastening, they would cry out to Him. And that's when God would raise up the, the uh, judge. And that's what we see in verse 16. And then later we see more about how he, they cried out to Him. But nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges which delivered them out of the hand of those that spoiled them. And yet they would not hearken unto their judges. But they went a-whoring after other gods and bowed themselves unto them. They turned quickly out of the way which their fathers walked in, obeying the commandments of the Lord. That's the way the fathers walked. But they, that generation, did not so. And when the Lord raised them up judges, and the Lord was with the judge, and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. Here's why. For it repented the Lord because of their groanings by reason of them that oppressed them and vexed them. And yet the sad cycle is repeated in verse 19. And it came to pass when the judge was dead that they returned and corrupted themselves more than their fathers in following other gods to serve them and to bow down unto them. They ceased not from their own doings nor from their stubborn way. Now, God's grace is at work in us to do differently. And yet so often, we seem not to be a whole lot different. I can remember when I was a young believer reading the wanderings of Israel in the wilderness. And as I saw their repeated failures, and this was when I was a young man, hadn't read the Scriptures much, I was kind of reading it fresh. You know, reading it again for the first time. And as I was, I thought, as I read it, Lord, these people, why they're, they're. And then the thought came to me, they're just like me made out of the same stuff, the same raw material. Now thank God grace does make a difference. And there will be a day when God's going to in His grace make a larger difference in Israel when He calls them back under the bond of the covenant. But we see here so often that failure. Now if we could just in the brief moments that remain let's notice a little bit of, uh, a little bit of this in the uh, course of what we see. And uh, Pick up in Judges 3, please, at verse 5. And the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, Hittites, and Amorites, and Perizzites, and Hivites, and Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and served their gods. And the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and forgot the Lord their God, and served Balaam in the groves. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia. And the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathaim eight years. And when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised up and delivered the children of Israel, who delivered them, even Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, and he judged Israel and went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Cushan-Rishathaim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand, and his hand prevailed against Cushan-Rishathaim. And the land had rest forty years, and Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. Here we have the first record of, of really the judge in Israel, Othniel. He is mentioned earlier in chapter 1 of Judges, and also back in Judges 15, uh, Joshua 15, excuse me, when the, the Judah is given its land to possess within the land of Canaan, and, and their tribal boundaries are set. And this one really is the, the first of the judges, but notice 
as the children of Israel sinned, that basic same pattern we saw back in chapter 2 is outlined in Judges 3, 5 through 7. God's anger burns against His people. And as that happens, He sold them. The same term we found back in chapter 2, but here it's specific. He sold them into the hand of this king of Mesopotamia. Now Mesopotamia is a good ways away. That's the land where Jacob got his wives, remember, when he was sent away by his mom and dad when he had stolen his brother's blessing with his mother's help. And his mother said, go away for a few days and I'll call for you. He never saw mom again, as far as we know, spent 20 years there. But that was in that land we would know as Syria. On beyond Damascus, between the two rivers, Euphrates and Tigris or Hittichel, those those rivers... Uh, were, were the land of Mesopotamia. Literally, Mesopotamia in the, is, a, is from a Greek word, in the midst of the rivers. Potamus is the word for river. A hippopotamus is a water horse. That's what it means. Hippos and what? Well, uh, and of course, when I was in Greek, we learned the word hippopotamus. Our Greek professor, Dr. Arp, he uh, told us about the Potomac River. I said, oh, that's the word potamus. He said, no, that's an Indian word. <laughs> Potomac. He caught me. But in any event, Mesopotamia, that's a good ways away. But God raised up somebody to come as an instrument in His hand in order to discipline His people so that they might cry out to Him. God raised up the judge Othniel. Now it happened again, verse 12. Notice it doesn't stop. And the children of Israel did evil again in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. And he, that is Eglon, gathered unto him the children of Ammon and Amalek and went and smote Israel and possessed the city of palm trees. Now the city of palm trees is another name for Jericho. This king of Moab with the Amalekites and Ammonites possesses the first city that the children of Israel possessed when they entered the land. Now, it sounds like things are becoming undone and unglued, doesn't it? But that's what God is teaching His people. And as a result, the children of Israel cry out to Him. And we read verse 14, So the children of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. But when the children of Israel cried unto the Lord, the Lord raised them up a deliverer. Ehud, the son of Begira, a Benjamite, a man left-handed, and by him the children of Israel sent a present unto Eglon, the king of Moab. Interestingly, remember Benjamin means son of my right hand. But here's a left-handed Benjamite. And that left hand is going to become the means by which God's going to bring deliverance because he goes to bring that gift. Some of you remember the story and he's got a dagger on his right thigh. Security didn't pat him down too good. He made it through the metal detector and he got in and as he got in, they... He said after they sent, gave the present and sent the other guys on ahead, y'all go on back, you know, to the quarries. And he says, oh, king, I have a message. I have a message from God for you. And the king says to his uh, servants, get out. This is a special message from God. Get out. And then he pulls out that knife with his left hand and plunges it into the king. And it sinks into his belly so deep that the, that Ehud can't take it out. Now, that's how God delivers. And then he goes and gets the forces and they come. Sadly, it doesn't stop there. Verse 1 of chapter 4. 
We read about Shamgar, by the way, in verse 31, but in chapter 4, verse 1, And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord when Ehud was dead, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, that reigned in Hazor, the captain whose host was Sisera, which dwelt in Herosheth, Herosheth of the Gentiles. Children of Israel cried to the Lord, What does he do? He raises up a deliverer. Deborah is connected with this, but Barak becomes the deliverer. It's a great story. It occupies chapters 4 and 5. After that, though, the same thing happens. The children of Israel do evil. God raises up Gideon. And we have, again, this story of Israel's failure. But what's the lesson? Well, let's turn as we close to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. And notice, as the Apostle speaks about Israel's wilderness wanderings there, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he talks about Israel's failure in the wilderness under Moses. And he says this in verse 11, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, Now all these things happened unto them for examples, and they are written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the world are come. Uh, we see here what happened to Israel is written for what? Examples to us. Examples so that you and I can learn. So that you and I might be admonished thereby. We might have the right kind of mindset. Well, I'll tell you what. That's where my battle is. How about yours? In my mind. I need the Lord's help. And so we end on that note. Uh, and, and really, in this, there's that call that you and I have to turn from sin and to commit to the Lord our ways so that we not dishonor Him. Let's pray. Father, we bow once again in Your presence in the name of Thy worthy Son, and we ask Thee by Thy Spirit to grant us to hear Your voice in the Holy Scriptures, that we learn from these examples that You've given us, and that, Father, we might indeed be admonished as they are written for our admonition, Lord, we pray that we might benefit and we might be a people marked by turning, Lord, to Thee, turning from our sin, re- reminded of Your chastening. May we cry out to Thee and may we break with sin in Christ's name. Amen.